You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hey everybody, this is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. <clears throat> On with me today is a friend of mine, Walter Young. Welcome, Walter. Thanks for having me, Dirk. Yeah, man, I, I love the background there. We were talking a little bit about it before, but uh, tell me, tell the audience real quick what that background is. Well, CTP is, is a, a financial planning uh, firm, and oftentimes, you know, we'll just tell people on Thursdays we're going to have a little coffee talk, and so they came up with uh, a, a literally a, a coffee background. And so sometimes I joke with people, let's grab a coffee, and this is my background. All right, I, it makes me want to have a cup. To be honest, I love it. Um, so Walter's a friend. You know, it's funny. I met Walter. Gosh, I don't know if there's through Nate or I think it was through Nate years ago. And and Walter is going to talk to us today a little bit about the insurance world, the business. And that's an, actually the industry that I thought about getting into multiple times, more on the property and casualty side. But I'm excited to have you on. Um, I know there's a lot to talk about, so let's get into it. Um, maybe we can just start with your own words. Um, tell me kind of what your background is and what you do in the insurance industry. Yeah, so my my technical background is I uh, have an MBA in finance. I uh, worked for Deloitte Consulting for a handful of years uh, in business consulting. Uh, and if any consultant knows that if you ever want to see your family, uh, you have to leave. And so, you know, I was on plane Monday to Friday for years. Uh, and eventually it just was too much. And so as I was looking around, for another industry to, to move into, you know, the financial planning industry kind of mirrored a little bit what, what our, you know, the corporate finance side of things or the strategy side that we were doing at Deloitte. And it also kind of really drew upon that MBA uh, background that I have. And, and, you know, one of the theories I have, one of the kind of philosophies I align myself with is that, you know, at home, we are just a small business, right? We should, we should operate ourselves with some of the same principles that we find in well-run businesses. Uh, and so, you know, so that I kind of just use that as my philosophy to evolve over time. And the insurance world, you know, was something that uh, I thought I would have a competitive advantage because um, in a weird way, the way I use life insurance is so much different than the average life insurance that, that I think I carved out my own little, my blue ocean from kind of just the classic, you know, life insurance, you know, term insurance kind of stuff, right? It was it's really more geared around, uh, you know, maximizing uh, retirement income planning by using uh, insurance and investments together, you know, which I'm sure we'll get into. But so that was kind of the the my uh, my entry point, and I, I've been doing this I don't know 15, 17 years since. Uh, now I have a, a, an RICP, which is Retirement Income Certified Professional, because I really spend a lot of time uh, thinking about retirement income planning because that's a really hard part of financial planning. Okay, so for somebody that's a little green, it's new. Um... You know, maybe their their dad or their mom was in the insurance world. You mm -hmm. made a comment before we hit record about being a dying breed. Can you kind of get into that a little more? Yeah, I mean, life insurance. If you think about your grandparents, you know, life insurance. What they used to call it the noble profession, right? I mean, actually, that was the title was being a noble profession. And back in the old days, right before Wall Street really took over, your your insurance person, your banking person, really was the focus of a lot of financial planning because the average person just didn't buy investments, right? They didn't exist, right? There weren't ETFs back in the day, or e even mutual funds aren't even that old. Uh, and so a lot of a lot of, per of personal financial planning revolved around banks and insurance companies, right? You, you had a pension, you had a life insurance policy, you had an annuity, 
And those were the real the products of, of that time period. And slowly over time, you know, we know that the investment world has kind of come in and we can, there's lots of philosophical reasons why that may be good or bad, uh, but it's really come in to take over uh, that that space. And, and the life insurance companies just have not kept up with, uh, with the advertising and, you know, really kept up with the times. And so we're seeing that the people who are life insurance focused are really aging. And, and sadly, I'm one of the young guys now. Uh, and so, uh, so I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a dying breed. I'm part of this group called the, the Forum 400, which is supposedly the 400 best producers in the country. And as we look around, we're just kind of shocked by how old the room is. Uh, and we're just not attracting young people for life insurance centric solutions. You know, they're, they're going more towards, you know, the investment side of the house, uh, where, you know, where there's maybe better economics, maybe better, um, you know, better uh, better reputations or at least things that are easier for people to deal with and digest. So in real simple terms, like I remember when I first got into the working world, a buddy of mine was calling everybody calling me and I bought term term life insurance, which, you know, is very cheap life insurance. So you die and X amount of dollars goes to you, your wife or your family or whatever. And then there's more complicated insurance. So when you were starting out, were you like a term guy or did you do all of the above? No, I really came in on the permanent insurance uh, side of the house uh, simply because I understood from an, from a, a financing and academic, uh, I, I had a, a different level of understanding how life insurance could fit into an overall financial plan. Uh, and term insurance is critically important. Everyone should have it. It's cheap. It's easy. It's a no-brainer, especially if you have a family. But life insurance is really a, a misunderstood vehicle. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of my favorite quotes by Einstein actually is, if a goldfish measures itself by its ability to climb a tree, it'll be forever disappointed. And, and the reason I use that is simply because I think we, we measure life insurance in the wrong ways. And so, of course, it doesn't stand up to investments and things that we compare it against to. It's not what it's for. But when you measure it or use it for what it really is for, it becomes a very powerful option. And so that was kind of my specialization that I got into the into the industry with was to really understand how to kind of use life insurance solutions in conjunction with everything else, right? Life insurance is never the star of of, of the show, right? It's always it's always Robin to Batman, right? Their, their life insurance should not be the centric. It's not you know it's not the main uh, focus, but man, without it, you lose a lot of choices and options and, and benefits, uh, you know, in a ter in terms of a financial plan. Yeah. So again, I mean for someone younger or somebody that's not too dialed in on this, you know, when you're talking about manage, you know, you work with a financial institution that manages your assets, your 401k, your stock, your mutual funds, whatever. Right. So that's something that's hopefully growing and it's evolving over time. Um, and then on the insurance side, you know, I think the stereotype or the, the mindset is everyone associates that with, this this is something I pay for if I'm not around or yeah. something happens. But that's not very true, right? When it comes to more of the complicated applications or products that you're involved yeah. with. Can you yeah, kind of get, can you try to, I mean, I know it's hard to in a younger audience, but can you, I, I think term life insurance is really easy to understand, but can mm -hmm. you kind of get into kind of what the benefits are and, and why somebody should consider some of the products that you offer versus yeah. just yeah. Throwing, throwing it all on Apple. Yeah, we'll just I mean, we'll kind of start. One thing about life insurance, it's a layering effect, right? Any any one 
benefit of the life insurance policy is fine, but it may or may not be, you know, the reason why you do it. So, so of course, you know, if we have term insurance, which is cheap, and we could buy a similar amount of insurance, of permanent insurance, and it's expensive, there better be a whole good reasons of why you would pay the extra money, right? Or you would just always buy the term insurance. And, and generally, it is around the tax deferral of the buildup of the policy, meaning that there's a savings account of cash value that's associated with the life insurance policy that is going to be, you know, a, it's a non-correlated asset, meaning it doesn't move up and down with the markets. It's a, it's a you know, a constant growth vehicle. It's, it's off the tax grid, so you never have to pay tax on it. Uh, the life insurance comes with also uh, long-term care protection. So as people get older, they like the idea that they can use it for their long-term care benefit. Uh, it's an asset that you can use before retirement. So I don't have to wait till I'm 59 and a half to pull money out of my policy. It's something that's not included on college calculations for financial aid. Uh, it's an, it has an ability for me to borrow money out of the policy so that I don't have to disrupt my assets if I have an emergency or opportunity, right? We forget that sometimes maybe I want to, I want to buy a, 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 there's a, a property that's, you know, that has a really good deal to it and I need a down payment for it. Well, where am I going to get the money? I have to either sell an asset that maybe I wish I didn't have to sell, or I have to go into debt to get it, or maybe I have this midpoint, which is this cash value that I can use, you know, for those kind of financing uh, stop gaps. But the real benefit of life insurance is when we get to retirement, in that it allows, it's a supporting mechanism to the investments that you do have. And what I mean by that is when we get to retirement, the distribution side of our, our financial life is the exact opposite of the accumulation side. So when we were young and we're putting money into our 401ks over time, dollar cost averaging, putting amounts of money in over long periods of time, we're okay if the markets go down. In fact, it's a good thing when the markets go down because we buy more shares. And so when the market comes back around again, we actually have more wealth. Well, that exact opposite happens at retirement time. So when I'm pulling money out of, the, of my retirement accounts and the market goes down, I suffer two losses, right? I have the market loss and then I have the withdrawal that I had to take to live on. And so the problem is that the markets rarely rebound fast enough to get me back to where I should have been or what my projection was at the beginning of this. And so by having a pot of money that I can access when markets are negative, then I can let my asset base rest and let it come back again, because typically markets in, after a couple of three years begin to become positive again. And so by just having the ability to buffer those handful of years, I can smooth out my retirement ride and I actually extend my asset base longer than if I just did the markets, right? So in a more technical conversation, people may have heard of what's called the 4% rule. Right. And the 4% rule is just a rule of thumb. Uh, we don't have to get into the details of how it came about, but the rule of thumb basically says that when I get to retirement, I could take my asset base, call it a million dollars, multiply it by 4%. And that's the income that I can expect to take out of it with an inflation bump to it each year. And so that 4% rule has persisted for a long time. People argue whether it's three or 4% today based on interest rates and, and longevity, right? Because we're living here. But the idea is that, that we're capped at this 4% rule which means in order for me to have $100,000, I need millions of dollars in retirement funds to make that happen. And for the average person, that may be a challenge. And so when you sit down with your financial planner and you're saying, look, I don't think I have, I, I don't think I have the income I'm hoping for, then they give you four options. You can save more money, which can be challenging. You could take more risk in hoping to grow your asset base more, but a lot of times at retirement, you're really trying to reduce the risk. 
You can work longer, which many people are starting to turn towards, but we don't always get to choose our retirement date, right? Sometimes companies just let us go. Sometimes our health lets us go, right? So we can't always assume we get to work till we're 65 or 70. And then the fourth option, which unfortunately lots of people turn to, was just begin to live on less, right? They begin to let go of their retirement dreams. This is when this is when I hear the people start saying, well, we don't need to go out to dinners. We don't need to take trips, right? And they start to really reduce all the things they'd hoped they would have because they're realizing that they're not going to get to this pot of money that they need. But what most people don't understand is there's a fifth option, which is the name of the book I wrote, the fifth option, which shows us that there are different strategies to improve upon that 4% withdrawal rate. See, the limiting factor is the 4% because we have to always worry about whether or not next year the markets are the negative years. But if I don't have to worry about that, then I can actually take more money out of my accounts confidently, which means that my retirement income goes up. And so the book goes into some suggestions and some ideas and examples of how to do that. But life insurance is the beginning, it's the gateway, it's, it's the product that lets me even have those conversations for that higher retirement income stream. Yeah, I mean, I'm listening and I'm, you know, I'm 53, so I've got a little a bit of life under my belt. But I'm I'm thinking about a younger person who's like, whoa, this is this is a lot. And and I'm thinking some of the things they might be thinking about. So like one question I would have, um, I'll throw a couple questions or a couple things at you and you can kind of address them. One is like how a young person would get into this line of work. You mentioned, I think before we hit record that a lot of the insurance uh, folks are kind of getting morphed into, I don't know, financial services. And now they're starting to sell the same products. So is a better route getting into like a financial services company. Um, the other one is kind of the skill sets that you might share that you have made you successful, because I know that you're really good at what you do. I remember before I met you, I was referred to you and heard a lot of um, praise about your abilities in this industry. So maybe talk a little bit about what you think would make a good person yeah. in your industry. And then I'd be kind of curious, since there's so much change, like in my mind, I'm thinking there's this battle between Walter, the insurance guy, and then the client's financial person. And it feels like there's, I don't know, tug of war a little bit of a, like this person saying you should do this and you got to, so it could be kind of confusing for somebody who's like, you know, is insurance. Cause I've been in situations where my financial people have told me I wouldn't do that product, that insurance product, but I see the benefits. So I don't know, take whichever one of those you want to go yeah. down, but Let's I know the last one first, which is probably the most important one, which is there absolutely is polarization in the financial services markets. Right. And, and some of that comes down simply to what products, are sold at the firms, right? So if you don't sell life insurance, guess what you don't recommend? You don't recommend life insurance. If you can only sell life insurance, guess what you recommend? You always recommend life insurance. And I think with the research coming out from, from the American College of Financial Planning and all the academic world is the power is in the, the, the merger of these two disciplines, right? Either side is incomplete. Typically, the, the, the investment side is much more growth oriented, and it is, right? There's no better, no better investments typically than markets, right? But they, their distribution is limiting, and it doesn't have the guarantees and the floors and the things as we get older we would like to have, right? In a perfect world, we'd have a pension that was equal to the lifestyle we want, right? That'd be a perfect world. But, but since we don't have that, we have to decide how much risk are we willing to take in order to have those that income you know, goals or that lifestyle. And so each side of the house is going to say, take the risk. 
don't take the risk. But the reality is the client needs to decide what because it's their life. And so this, I think if we can merge these two disciplines together, the clients will be will be benefited by, by doing that. So so the idea is we need to build a bridge so that it's not just don't ever do this or always do this. It's understand the math behind it and then make a choice that fits your lifestyle, right? You know, I think a lot of advisors really inject their own bias into the retiree's life when it when it doesn't belong there. If you love risk and I don't, it's not for me to try to talk you out of risk. It's for you to, to, to be able to show you what the risk is and make sure you understand it. Or if you don't like risk, it's not my job to tell you you should be in risky things, right? We have to just kind of educate clients and they'll tell us what it is that they're looking for because you can create income streams with lots of different ways, right? With, you know, different kinds of products. And so I think we get caught up in this either or scenario. I think as a young person coming up, to be really successful, you have to have a little bit of salesmanship. You have to be able to really, you know, talk and articulate and not be afraid of going out there and having conversations. But I think it also benefits you if you have a little bit of math behind you, because some of these conversations get really, can get very mathematical. Uh, and so when we're looking at different scenarios, right, and we're, and we're going through the different outcomes, it's really helpful to know the math behind it as to why that's the case. Uh, because, you know, especially living in the Seattle area, there's plenty of engineers that will come up with their own spreadsheets that are pretty darn impressive, right? And so you better know some of the math that's behind it that they're doing. And I think alongside that is, you know, a good mentorship is really important because there is a lot of risk and there is a lot of compliance. There is a lot of pitfalls that you can fall into if you're just doing this by yourself and trying to navigate it, you know, along the way. So having someone that, you know, you have good, uh, really good trust with and you feel has a good reputation and has a good ability to teach you, I think it's really important. It's probably not just unique to this industry, but, you know, I think if you go back to the 1900s, you know, you had, you had apprenticeships and you had master class people, right? And they kind of learned that trade as they moved up. And we kind of lost that with the industrial revolution where we all just became, you know, cogs in the machine. But I think some of these services going back to that apprenticeship, don't be afraid to be a good apprentice for a while because I think it really will short circuit the learning curve over the long run. So what is the future? Is it these financial services companies are starting to like go all in on insurance? And no. are the, no? Nope, they're not. <laughs> but I think that as the research starts to come out, I think there'll be a reckoning of, of the fact that, you know, we have to see, you know, this kind of, this these new philosophies at least be talked about. But again, you know, when, when you're in the ivory tower and just producing these papers, it doesn't get to the average person and, and it barely gets to the average advisor, right? Because they're yeah. they're consumed with kind of what their companies and their philosophies are teaching them. Uh, you kind of have to go outside some of that in order to get some of the advice or, you know, the, the research that's, you know, so hopefully is objective and, and, and neutral. Uh, but there's still a very good, you know, there's a very good division between insurance-based solutions uh, and, and non We'll see as people retire and have uh, more risk or feel that there's more risk to their retirements, we might see attitudes change by the consumer saying, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be whipsawed on a, on a yearly basis based on the markets. I want some predictability. I want some ability to have the ability to plan my expenses without worrying. Uh, and so as, as those conversations become articulated, we may realize that there's a place for all of these tools. So the products you deal with, they don't all deal with death, correct? Correct. So, you know, like, for example, an annuity is the opposite of that, right? So 
Life insurance, you put into a product until you die. And annuities, you put money in and you take it out until you die, right? You get a payment until you die. Uh, so they're kind of the polar opposites of each other. Uh, and so, you know, that's why they can work so well. So, you know, uh, in terms of, of their solution sets um, and uh, and they can really bolster uh, a good portfolio, right? They can really do a good job of of helping push the income that a person might get had they just had one solution or the other. Got it. So you you said you're one of the young guys and you're you're probably close. I think you and I, we've talked about this. We're close to the same age. age. Yeah. Uh, so what the heck's going on with like, you know, the demographics of early 20s, mid 20s to, you know, early 50s? Like, are there just not many people that are signed up? I mean, that are in this world of insurance? I mean, I would think that would be a big problem or maybe a big opportunity. Well, I think both, uh, you know, so yes, I think they're coming through the normal, the more traditional financial planning shops that are more asset gathering and more portfolio managing, because uh, those are the, those are good economics, right? As you build a business, right? You know, they have, they have good, you know, revenue streams and, and you know, they have a good terminal value where you can sell uh, a company, you know, at, at the end of the day too. And I think where the, the trick is, is to, to make sure that these advisors, there's nothing wrong with that. Just that they understand all the financial products that exist, not just the ones that, you know, that they're in front of. Uh, and there's a big conversation around the fiduciary rule, which is a big thing in our industry, which is, you know, the fiduciary standard is making sure you're always doing the best uh, for your client, right? As if it was you, you know, you know, how would you treat yourself? That's how you treat the client. And a lot of that argument revolves around commissions, right? And insurance right now still is a commission-based product for the most part. And so some people who call themselves fiduciaries will say that, we can only be a fiduciary if we don't sell commission-based products, right? Because therefore there would be no incentive for us to ever think that we would bring this product in because of a commission. The other side of the fence is saying, well, how can you be a fiduciary if you don't even offer everything that exists, right? What if, what if this product is something that they need? What if, what if long-term care is an important part of their, of their financial planning? Are you just going to say, sorry, you know, you'll have to take that risk. So I think, you know, the, hopefully the new financial planning people that are coming in, really can take a look at all the options and understand that to do a good job for a client, you must consider all of them and rule ones in and rule ones out and hopefully agnostic to the way you get paid. Uh, you know, uh, but I think you'll also see uh, that financial products will move away from commissions in the long run, that life insurance annuities eventually will be more fee-based or be more in line with the way financial planning is done today. Okay. Uh, so you may see kind of a commission a sunset in some of those commission products over time. Let's do, I also like to kind of get into compensation and I'm not asking you, Walter, you know, to show us your W2, what you make, but I do want to get into kind of how somebody is paid in your world. Um, you know, just so people kind of, I don't really like, even when I got into this business, gosh, 23 years ago, I never really thought about kind of you're starting over every month in the, in the mortgage world versus my guy, my buddies that are in insurance or financial services where you build a book of business. But can you maybe talk a little bit about the nature of compensation in your industry? Yeah, so so life insurance is sold, uh, you know, and there's a commission associated based on how much insurance you buy, right? And so, uh, and, and there's, there's different ways to configure the insurance that minimizes some of those commissions. There's other options where, you know, the commissions are larger. Uh, but, you know, but it's, by and large, it's based on the death benefit amount that you purchase, right? Um, now, we, don't, we won't get into all the complexities of all the minutiae that goes into it, but by and large, that's what it is. And then after that, there is um, a, a trailing commission 
that's really built to help make sure you're incented to, to service the person, right? So it's not just a transaction uh, because, you know, it doesn't do anybody good if someone buys a life insurance policy and then abandons it, you know, three, four, five years later, right? Life insurance is a long-term product and it gets better over time. So we really want to make sure that someone is uh, able to monitor it, make sure that it's performing right, uh, and that it ultimately does what it's, what it's supposed to do, right? Which is pay somebody you know, on, on, on your deathbed, right? Um, so, uh, so there's that commission. Annuities are the same thing, right? Annuities come uh, with a commission based on you know, how big the annuities and the type, the type of annuity. Some annuities pay out a lot more than others. Some annuities have trails, some don't. Uh, you know, so there's kind of a, a portfolio of things when it comes to the annuity world. Um, but it's not as doesn't it's not as trail friendly as the financial services part where you're charging one percent on a portfolio or something like that, uh, you know, through thick and thin. And you, as you build up your business, you have this large renewal base at the end of each year. But life insurance does have the you know the ability to have you know a, a nice enough uh, renewal to it that you're not starting over at zero every single year. You know, kind of like a you know maybe the mortgage business does. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because I think this is. You know, I like money. I like freedom with money and I don't like being capped. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to ask you, like when you, you use the word trail, I've always used the word recurring revenue, book of mm -hmm. business. But in the world of different sales types of careers, you know, you can sell like mortgages where you get paid when the loan funds and you're done. Uh, hopefully you're doing more, um, you know, referral business and you're just continuing to be busy every month. In Walter's world, in the insurance, financial services, I've got buddies in property casualty insurance. They're they're building a book of business that they essentially get paid on every year. So if you have a large client and they go away, you don't get paid on it. Are there other recurring revenue sales careers that you're aware of, or would you say the insurance and the financial services are it? Uh, I don't know specifically on the corporate side. There could be things where if you're selling licensings, for example, yeah. uh, that there could be a percentage of the licensing that you know continues. I know uh, in uh, in the uh, recruiting world uh, that as long as someone has a job, you get a percentage of of you know their hourly rate that continues, and as long as they keep going. So there probably are other examples where there's some sort of um, benefit to it. Uh, but, you know, obviously the financial service is pretty well known for yep. building that, that, you know, income up property casualty, another great example, uh, you know, different economic models, but the same concept of, of having this revenue stream that continues. Uh, and, you know, and that's the equity of your business that you can, you know, that you can sell at the end of it. The insurance world is, you know, the life insurance is, is much less regarded and has a lot less of a value to it at the end, because it's not the same uh, as a property casual or or the um, investment management side, but there's some right because the transaction is largely done, so there isn't a lot of more transaction upside from that. It's just really maintaining it or, or uh, you know trying to keep it on the books versus um, the AUM side of the house or the property casualty where you get paid very well to keep that client going, right? And that, you know, and you hope that they stay with you for a long time. Yeah. Did you think about those things when you got in? Like I did, I did, uh, but I honestly don't like the risk, uh, and I didn't want to have to deal with the phone calls. And quite, I mean, this is going to maybe sound sheepish, but I, I didn't want to lose people money. I, I didn't want to be the reason that something went wrong. And even you know, yeah. you do, you know, you know, I know markets go up and down. I never wanted someone's kid to not go to college because their five twenty nine took a dump in two thousand eight. You know, or, or so. I knew that my product was always going to be is guaranteed to grow. Period. I just knew that there was never a year where it wasn't going to be bigger than the year before. And I just needed to teach people how to complement what they're doing. So, like for example, even 
you know, even when the a 529 plan, there's volatility there, right? So there could be a year where the market's negative. I use my life insurance policy to pay the college that year and let my 529 plan recover. So I'm not having that same issue where the, the 529 plan goes down. I take money out to pay for college. And now I have a much smaller amount in there than I had hoped, right? So you can, you know, we can see how we can use these two tools together, you know, for a lot of different things. One question I'm thinking about is if someone's thinking, huh, interesting, I, I kind of think the financial could be cool. I think the insurance could be cool. Can you kind of briefly walk us through, like, I know the financial services world. I looked into it years ago as well and all the tests and they're not easy tests, right? The series, mm-hmm. whatever, I don't even know the names right. of them. Is it similar in insurance or is it, is, I don't want to use the word easier, but is getting into your world a lot easier than getting into financial services? Yeah, yeah, it is because insurance products are not securities, right? So all the rules with securities just don't apply. Uh, So there's not as many, you know, it's not many, you know, I don't have to learn options. You don't have to learn, you know, how stocks trade. You don't have to understand all the nuances to that stuff that you do on the stock side, but there are tests to get into the life insurance and, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard, but it's not trivial, Um, you know, and, and it should be, right. There should be, there should be some, you know, some uh, barrier to entrance to get into these things because you are impacting people's financial lives. Uh, but it's nowhere near a Series Seven, for example, or a Series sixty-five, like you're you know, mentioning. Uh, but then, when your life insurance, you are you're limited to talking about insurance, right? You don't get to say what stock you should buy or what or, or what funds you should be purchasing or those kinds of things, right? You really are working in, like I work in conjunction with those people to put together the full financial plan. What would you say? What would you say like has made you good at what you do? Like not to, I know you're a humble guy, but like, like wh- why are you good at this business? Like why have you risen to the top in your world? You mentioned you're one of the top 400 guys nationally. Like what is it about you that makes you succeed in this industry? Well, I think one is um, being a perpetual student, just knowing that you never, you know, that you never, know enough. You just never know enough. Uh, and there's always someone that knows more, is able to share, whether it's how to communicate something or something that's just, that's very, you know, code or IRS related, like, you know, something technical uh, that there's, you know, there's people out there that are brilliant, right? And no matter how good you are, uh, there's someone smarter. And, and so I've, I've just made it a lifelong lesson that I reinvest in myself every year by going to the conferences, learning facilities. And even if I, you know, I, I guess I always approach something that you can't learn less. So even if I'm underwhelmed by certain things, there may be things I will learn that I don't want to do as much as things I learned that I do want to do. Uh, and then creating a network around you of people uh, that you really, you know, you kind of hold yourself to the level of, of professionalism uh, and, you know, you kind of rise up together in terms of what everybody learns and shares and uh, and is able to communicate th- that way. I think those were really two important things. And then just having some grit. Right. I mean, selling life insurance, no one no one says that from the top of the mountain that that's what they do. Right. It's just it's a hard that's a hard you know, it's a hard thing to say, um, you know. And so uh, but you got to have some thick skin to get through those initial kind of side eye glances until you can get to the math of it or you can get to the point where you can show it, you know, in an objective way of saying, here's the path you're on. Here's two or three other options you don't even know exist. But now that you know pick the one that you feel the most comfortable with. And a lot of the times it does include the insurance world. They the just got to know. The first one you mentioned, I was thinking like your natural uh, interest in learning, right? 
um, Mm -hmm. and knowing more. That would be exhausting if you didn't really, you weren't really into what you're doing. And I'm imagining, and I bring this up because a lot of people are in careers or jobs that they're just burned out and they don't love it. And Mm -hmm. that's tough. But I, I think what I'm hearing from you is you're naturally interested in the business, the products, whatever you're going every year learning about. Um, would you say that that's a big part of your success? I mean, you, you seem like you're not bullshitting, you know, yeah. like you're not just going through the motions. Like you're truly, uh, you know, maybe on a Sunday night you're in bed and you're reading something about your industry. Is that accurate? hundred percent when I'm working out doing whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think, I think my natural calling, I'm, I'm kind of becoming more of an uh, evangelical for, retirement income planning than anything. And I know that people of wealth get all the attention and guess what? They're going to be fine. Right. You know what, you know what, you know what financial planning does for wealthy people is it protects their, their, their wealth tax planning and then generational planning. Right. So they're going to be fine, but there's this swath it's in middle America that is on the fence. And right now they don't know whether or not they can retire because they don't really understand how it works. They don't understand, you know, when I have a certain amount of money, what does that mean? How do I get the most of it? How do I how do I have safe, predictable income for as long as I need it to be? And so that's the area that I'm fighting for, right? Which is the people that that really still can get there, but they got to learn all of the choices that exist. They have to learn all the strategies and they don't get exposed to them very often. Uh, and then there's, of course, a segment that we can never help, right? But I'm really after that middle ground and trying to figure out how can we educate them? How can we get them to the place where they get their best chance at having the retirement that they've worked so hard for uh, and maybe elevate them into that level of like, you can go do some of the fun stuff that you thought, you know, I can't tell you how many people like that are, you know, professionals I hear say, well, I'll never retire because it's not that it's not the true. They just don't know how to do it. Right. They just don't know even how to even think about it. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the American, the financial literacy in America is terrible, right? And so, uh, you know, in whatever way I can, you know, I'm trying to trying to push some knowledge out there for people to to think differently about how the retirements might work. What's behind that? Are you, is there something more to it or is it just as simple as that's a, that's a demographic or an audience that really needs help? Or yeah. is there more of an emotional, like? Maybe, I mean, you know, my mom, my mom is, you know, didn't grow up with much, you know, um, and, you know, she's not from this country. And so, you know, we always had, you know, we, we were always on kind of on the margin for lots of that stuff. And so maybe just growing up with a little bit of this, of, I don't want to call it scarcity, but certainly having, you know, not having as much as your neighbors did. And just maybe just kind of keeping that mindset through, which is, you know, you know, how can we help people, you know, just learn how this is going to be? I mean, you work a long time. Uh, and the worst th- feeling in the world is just not knowing what happens when that income turns off. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, and I think we're going to see a change in demographics. If you look at the Gen Z's and the millennials, you know, their attitude towards work is changing. Uh, you know, they may not have the same retirement date kind of driven thing that we do, uh, you know, age 65, I'm out of there. They may be that they're in this perpetual working zone, you know, for most of their lives. And, and, you know, we talked about this concept called Ikigai, which is this great Japanese philosophy that says, you know, you try to figure out what am I good at? What does the world need? What does it get paid for? And what do I love? And at the centerpiece of that is Ikigai, right? And so if you find at some point that you're in that center, you're not working, right? I mean, that's where that's where you want to be. And a lot of the Japanese folks will tell you that that's their goal is to get there because then there is no retirement date, right? You're just doing what you love. 
and, and you know, the economics come together, the fulfillment comes together. And I think the Gen Zs and millennials probably do a better job of really starting to investigate that because uh, you know, they don't have the same financial tools our parents did. There's no pensions. Social security is a little, a little iffy. They're realizing that for them, it's a little bit harder, right? Buying a house is a little bit harder. Student debt is a little bit harder. So they have to kind of find contentment in a different way, probably. So can you spell, so I, I, I'm going to say Iki, but wh- how do you, what is the term again? The, yeah, Ikigai, I-K-I-G-A-I. And technically, you know, if you think of a Venn diagram, at the top of it is what do you love? What do you love to do? Okay. And the next circle is what the world needs. Okay. Then the next one, the, the circle below is what you can get paid for. Mm-hmm. And then the last circle is what are you good at? Mm-hmm. And there's these sub-circles, which may be too hard to do on a, on a webinar here, but what you love and what the world needs is a mission. What the world needs and what you get paid for is a vocation. Mm-hmm. What, the, what, the, what you can get paid for and what you're good at is a profession. And what you're good at and what you love is a passion. And in the center of that is Ikigai. So you can see that when we talk with people, you know, especially younger folks, they're still trying to figure all that out, right? I mean, I have a friend at a a large technology company and and they're recognizing for their younger folks, they have to to show them the impact they have in the world for them to get excited about it. It's not just about stock options anymore. It's about what good am I doing? Like, how do I feel about, you know, myself and and what's what I'm presenting to the world? So I think the younger folks are really moving in this interesting way of, of not just putting our head down like maybe Gen X and boomers did and just work r- really hard and then try to retire. Uh, you know, that, that may be a healthy thing or may not. We'll see what happens. Yeah, no, it's interesting because that's part of the podcast is I'm trying to get, I'm trying to make, not make, I'm trying to have younger people that have a lot of voices in their head. Cause when I was you Santa Clara, right? Yeah. And university yeah. of Washington. And I mean, I was thinking about money. I was thinking about a new car. I was thinking about, you know, sales, right? I was thinking, okay, I'm good with people. I, I'm not, you know, people like me, I'm honest. I feel like Mm -hmm. I could represent a product or service, but I was never thinking about like really what I'm naturally like came into this world gifted to do. Like, you know, what do I love to do? You know, what, what, uh, what, 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 what energy, you know, what gives me energy? And so with younger adults, I'm always trying to get them to think about the uniqueness of who they are and, you know, I mean, I know sometimes if you love to fish, doesn't mean that's going to be your career. If you love right. to paint, you know, it could just be a passion. But yeah. I see, I see people, Walter. Like, you know, we have mutual friends, and it's like sports. You know, there's certain athletes that just separate, right? That are just better. Yeah. Um, I see people in their careers that just separate themselves from people, and oftentimes they're much wealthier and they're much happier, and they're, and it's just there's something about like what they're doing that's in alignment with who they are mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there's no secret behind that. So that's my hope often with this podcast is to interview people like you and you know, Hey, here's Walter on a Sunday night. He might be reading in bed about some insurance product. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important to note um, because I don't think young adults think like that. And maybe you're right. Maybe they're starting to think like that. I don't know. But um, I think, if you look at how much time you spend working, it's a lot of time. And if you hate your job, I mean, I think that's kind of a sad life. Yeah, for sure. And, and you can think of these circles as being some are bigger than others, right? So maybe I'm making more money, but my self-fulfillment or what I'm passionate about is very small. 
Yeah. And and I and I don't find the icky guy, you know, the the proverbial icky guy that way, right? That that's what I'm trying to get out of my job. Well, you know, that would tell me I'm out of alignment. But I think what you can look at the the youth, you can just look at all the side hustles, right? This you can maybe use their side hustle as a proxy for what they really love, and they're trying to develop them into businesses to some degree, you know, as best they can. And and some will have upsides, some won't, right? And so maybe they'll you'll always have to do something that's you know not your favorite thing to do, but you, then you go home and have this hobby, you know, that uh, that you love to do. And some may blow up into a wonderful business, and and you know, and then you, you know maybe that's just the the lucky person. Yeah, uh, sometimes it is luck. So when you're coming out of Santa Clara, did you jump right into this industry, or was yeah, there? I, I went 1991. I started in the financial services, and then I then I went back and got my MBA, uh, okay. and and did some you know some, did the corporate side of that for a while, which is a little bit why I came back into it because I had some familiarity with it uh, back in the in the 2000s. Do you remember why you thought you needed an MBA? Um, I wanted to learn more about how accounting and finance and and some of the hardcore um, stuff that businesses do because uh, I was taking on a role at that point where I was doing more kind of corporate accounting, corporate finance uh, kind of thinking. And I figured it would be a good way for me to kind of, I, I was kind of learning on the job. I'd go, I literally would go to class one night, learn something and bring it back to the company the next day and say, hey, we should do it like this, you know? And and, uh, and that's when I realized, well, if I do it at the business, I should do it at home like this, right? And so, you know, there's really no separation in my mind between, you know, a corporation and a home and a home, you know, because at the end of the day, they're, they're both should be centered around cash flow. And, you know, and I think a big, I think one of the big failings of personal financial planning is it, it revolves around balance sheets instead of cash flow, right? You, you know, no, no CFO brags about their balance sheet for the most part. They, they brag about their earnings, their cash flow, right? The return to their investors. And when we talk about a big balance sheet, well, that's only good if it turns into cash flow. And I got to know how to do that, or I just have a bag of money that doesn't buy me anything, right? I mean, if I, if I have a million dollars buried in the a trunk of a car in the desert and I don't have the keys to the car, it, what gets the million dollars, right? I got to unlock it into cash flow. Uh, and the more efficient I do that, the better off I'm going to be, right? And so that's kind of how I began to dovetail my my career in the in terms of that thinking. So we know what cash flow is, but can you um, can you, in your own words, or to someone who's younger, like explain exact like an example of cash flow so they can understand what you're talking about? Well, I think at the at the highest level, at some point, you have to replace your earned income, the money you work for, with passive income, money that you don't work for. And if you ever want to retire, that transition has to happen or you got to keep working. And so as we're saving up this money, just think of savings as future cash flow, right? Money that I'm going to turn into cash flow when I retire or I stop working. And so the efficiency of which I can do that will dictate how well my retirement goes. Uh, and so, you know, so that's what I really spend a lot of my time is understanding that efficiency because companies focus on efficiency most of the time to get to get their gains, right? We would love sales to go up all the time, but a lot of times it's cost cutting or it's other efficient ways of doing things that adds to the bottom line also. Yep. And at the home front, I think we don't get those exercises, those examples. And so we we land up, you know, we land up having a lot of holes in our financial buckets. You know, we just have a leaky bucket and we don't, we think by turning on the faucet more, we'll solve the problem, but not if you have holes in it. Uh, and so, you know, a, kind of a unique capacity I had was to learn some of that stuff at, at the corporate level uh, and just spot, you know, areas of inefficiencies. And so we could bring those to the household levels, too. I know you love what I you do. do. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. 
something I heard something. Um, is there something about your career that you just don't like or you didn't see coming? I mean, not every job career is perfect, yeah. right? But yeah. like if you're just to be super honest and you were you had a child that was like, hey dad, I kind of want to follow in your footsteps. Is there one or two things you might warn him about? Uh, I hate the paperwork. <laughs> just paperwork is, uh, yeah, there's a lot of paperwork. I mean, I'm talking to you, you, you know how much paperwork goes in your business. Uh, there's paperwork. You have to be really careful about legal and compliance and risk. I mean, there's risk in making a recommendation, right? And you have to make sure that you really feel good about, you know, the, the, the recommendations you're making and how it interrelates with the rest of their financial advisors to make sure that you're really adding to a, a value and not just having discrete transactions that don't work together, right? Uh, so I think those would be the two things. Um, I never loved prospect or cold calling. I was, I never loved that part, um, you know, and so, um, uh, but I did love, you know, being able to be, present in front of people uh, you know, theories and concepts and ways of thinking about it and challenging the norms uh, and really trying to tell people, you know, there's more ways than you know, uh, and just have this out of the box concepts, right, th that we can bring to people. Um, but, you know, there's, there's you know, a he healthy dose of paperwork and, and documentations and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, you know, you got to make sure that you understand the ramification of what you're recommending. Yeah, I will say, you know, when you're, you mentioned that to me before about maybe not the cold calling but the one thing i like about you a lot and i and i think this is important for the audience to take note of is like you're really an honest guy like you're not as to me you're not salesy you're not full of crap you know trying to sell a product or like i really i trust you i believe uh and i'm sure there's a lot of times where you're telling people that you shouldn't do anything and you should stay put or whatever and i think if you're looking at, cause this is not like you're selling paper clips or rubber bands or, you know, a gym membership, like you're, you're dealing with things that can really affect the bottom line uh, yeah. of a family. And I think if people that are going to consider this as a career, you have to have the authentic, believable, non be, you know, you have to have those, um, characteristics, personality traits where people believe and trust you. And, yeah. You know, you either got it or you don't. And I don't know how you get, I think you're either born that way or you're not. But yeah. I think that's really important if you're considering this line of work. Yeah, there's a great quote I heard from somebody that said, he uses the acronym ACE. You have to have ACE, which is authority, credibility, and exclusivity, right? You have to have the authority that people will listen to you. You have to have the credibility, the experience that they trust that you know what they're hoping for. And then exclusivity, you know, that. They feel you know lucky and special to be part of a community that you work within uh and i think you know that's really i think we work hard to get to that level of ace uh you know and, and you know it helps to have the gray hair and the gray beard there's no question about it yeah i like the beard looks <laughs> good on you mine's all gray um yeah. but i like growing a beard because i don't have much on top so yeah it gives me something to do um let's see as we wind down i was going to ask you um about your website the fifth option is like just to kind of help promote you your services is if people are interested in you or getting help from you is that the best way to reach you yeah i think you know great way is to go to the website it's called uh the fifth option.com all spelled out uh and then my book on amazon is the fifth option right and so it's, uh, those are great places to start uh and you'll start to learn uh the fifth option is a very simple book but it's uh it's basically my interpretation of some of the white papers that have come out over the years 
that takes really high level academic thinking and turns into a story uh, and hopefully unlocks some new ways of thinking about retirement income planning that that people hadn't thought of before. Uh, and, you know, people can agree with it or disagree with it, but you can't ignore the math, right? You can say, I, I get it, but I don't want to do it this way. And that's fine, right? But I want you to at least have seen it so that's in the consideration set so that you're choosing from abundance of, of knowledge instead of just not been exposed to something. As we finish up, is there anything I haven't asked you or anything you might, you know, advice um, to somebody that's watching that's kind of, maybe they're struggling. Maybe they don't know what the hell they want to do or they're interested, but they're not sure. Any kind of advice you might uh, leave with our group? Well, I think there is a little self-reflection when it comes to career of really, you know, there is something I think today where you have to love what you do, but it, it could take some time to love it because there could be some work to get there. So, you know, you played football, you didn't love two a days, but without them, you know, you didn't get to a level of, of, of ability that really wins the games. Right. So, uh, so I, but I do think there has to be some inherent curiosity uh, that you have to have. If you're not curious about it, then you probably won't take the time to learn what you need to learn about it. Uh, and, you know, you, your first job is never your last one. So, you know, getting in somewhere, learning, and even if you learn it, you don't like it, you learn something, right? And you just kind of move on from there. And then take advantage of your networks. You know, reach out reach out to us gray-haired folks that have got some time in the saddle and learn about things. And we can give you perspective and, and then go, you know, network with other other vocations and jobs and see kind of what is that, you, that really, what, you know, what at some point, what gets you out of bed? What are you excited about? I love it. Um... I just thought of something. I think I got, I probably was 25 and I was interviewing, I think it was the son, HO Sports. I think Herb O'Brien, I don't know, it was water skis and all these different products. And he was really cool. And I interviewed with him and he was asking me what the number one, he, the, the number, most important part of being successful in sales. And he said it was enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And I also, and I think, you know, enthusiasm, if it's genuine enthusiasm, I think that's another thing is if you're naturally enthusiastic about something or it attracts you or interests you or you're reading magazines or you're, you know, you're watching YouTube, whatever mm -hmm. on, so I think that's a, important to note, right? Cause mm -hmm. kind of just look at what takes up your day and where you're spending time. And uh, I think that's going to lead you somewhere. But um, anyway, I really appreciate your time, Walter. Um, I, um, I think that, I mean, here's my take on ending. I feel like there's a lot of opportunity in the world of insurance. Um, you know, you talk about being a dying breed, but I don't think this is, you know, a product or a service that's going away. And, and yeah. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for younger adults to kind of get into this. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's ready for some young people to get in and be excited about it. Because uh, it's not talked about enough. It just isn't. Cool. All yeah. right, man. Have fun in your coffee shop. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Dirk. All right, All right, take care.